TED Audio Collective. Tired of unnecessary payroll errors? Stop them in their tracks. With Paycom, employees do their own payroll. They're able to identify errors and fix them before submission, right in the app. Because no one can afford for payroll to be wrong. Not HR and payroll teams, not leaders, and definitely not employees. Shorted paychecks, timesheet corrections, unentered sick days, missing overtime hours, and expense mistakes are, well, unnecessary for everyone. Manage the process to make payday right with Paycom. Learn more at paycom.com slash soundrise. That's paycom.com slash soundrise. Hi, I'm Debbie Millman. Canva is great for designing visual content for work, no matter what industry or department you work in. Now your next presentation with Canva Presentations. Start with a professionally designed template and use it as a springboard for your design. It's a serious time saver. Time to present but can't be there in person? Enter Canva Talking Presentations. Record yourself presenting and add your talking head to your slides so your audience can watch your perfected presentation anywhere, anytime. Start designing today at canva.com. Designed for work. You know, it, it is both the American idea, but there's something very cosmopolitan, truly cosmopolitan about New York. And that has to do with just coming here and feeling you are a part of it and it is a part of you. From the TED Audio Collective, this is Design Matters with Debbie Millman. For 18 years, Debbie Millman has been talking with designers and other creative people about what they do, how they got to be who they are, and what they're thinking about and working on. On this episode, architecture critic and urbanist Michael Kimmelman talks about the pleasures of walking in the city. You never really understand a place unless you walk it, unless you're there. Why are we tourists? Why do we travel? Design is an integral part of the designs that help shape our lives, especially when it comes to creating great spaces and experiences at home. I'd like to tell you about Meyer Labs' six-piece essential cookware set in matte black. Combining global user research and unmatched quality expertise, the Meyer Labs team designed this set with four pots and pans and two universal lids to do the work of a 12-piece set. It also includes space-saving stackability and a durable, beautifully designed matte black exterior, not to mention a special boilover-reducing feature on the stockpot. Get yours at Meyer.com forward slash design. That's M-E-Y-E-R dot com forward slash design. And use the code design for 30% off your order. Try it for yourself so you can experience the true joy of beautiful, stackable cookware. When the pandemic first hit, New York City, the city that never sleeps, took a long, long nap. Shortly after that happened, Michael Kimmelman wrote an email to some architects, historians, writers, and friends 
asking them to go for socially distanced walks around the city to places that spoke to them about the city that they loved. Michael Kimmelman is the New York Times architecture critic, and these walks with friends and colleagues through the sleeping city work their way into his newspaper column. And now they've made their way into a new book, The Intimate City, Walking New York. Michael Kimmelman has had an extraordinary career in journalism. He was the New York Times' longtime chief art critic. He has reported from 40 countries, and he has helped shape the conversation around cities, sustainability, and climate change. He's also got a side hustle I can't wait to ask him about. Michael Kimmelman, welcome to Design Matters. Thanks, Debbie. It's a pleasure to be here. Michael, in addition to your Pulitzer Prize-nominated writing, I understand you're quite an accomplished classical pianist (laughs) and have been a longtime student of Seymour Bernstein, one of the most sought-after teachers in the world. When did you start playing piano? I started with Seymour when I was five years old. Um, So he's my third parent, I think, is what I would have to say. How can I put this? I I was talented enough that he didn't fire me as a student, even though I didn't practice year in and year out. Um, And then I became more serious later on. um, And Seymour and I have had a very lifelong, obviously, a lifelong relationship. And it's been one of the most wonderful, not just relationships, but aspects of my life to be able to continue to play and to be able to give some concerts occasionally too, because uh, it's always good to put yourself out there, especially if, as a critic, you are talking about other people who put themselves out there. It's it's a reminder of how much is on the line and how much people care about these things. Yeah, I want to talk to you about that sort of sense of being a critic versus being a, a creator of the things that people can critique um, in a little bit. You're a native New Yorker, as am I. Your father was a physician and your mother was an artist and a sculptor and was also one of the founders of the peace activist group Women for Peace. Women Strike for Peace, that's right, yeah. I understand that they were both civil rights advocates and activists and that it was likely that the entire McCarthy hit list probably came to your house to have dinner or to strategize at one point (laughs) or another. What was this like for you to be surrounded by so many interesting activists and people that were making a big difference in the world? It was, of course, normal until I realized it wasn't normal. And I'm very grateful for that upbringing. Yeah, my dad was with the Freedom Riders. He was a physician who went with the Freedom Riders, and he was very close to sort of all, many of the leaders of the civil rights movement. You know, it was really interesting to be in a household where it wasn't just that people were coming and going. I mean, I so I was, when I was very young, I you know I didn't know who Gus Hall was, but I realized he came over for free dinners all the time. And then I came to understand he was the head of the Communist Party, and I didn't know who Angela Davis was, but then I realized that she too was an important and interesting figure. And and I think what was interesting about it for me growing up was that I saw the way my uh, parents consumed news and information. There was a lot of there were a lot of journals and um, my father read the New York Times as if he was trying to decode it all the time because he felt that it was probably owned by the CAA and that if he could figure out what it, what it was really saying, he would know what was going on behind the scenes. But there was this sense that that writing mattered, that it was that there was a public conversation taking place. And it was 
and it was meaningful um, and that it and that it would help shape the world. So I think that was one of the things that came out of it. I, I also reacted against my father's romantic sense of black and white uh, politics. And I think that also helped shape my career and my desire to unpack things in a more granular way, which is part of what journalism is supposed to do, that the world was grayer. I think my mother appreciated that more. She was a much more cynical New Yorker, a wonderful, loving, um, funny woman. But it was my father's sort of, you know, encompassing view of things that was the dominant voice in the house. It's been the backdrop to the way I think about so many things um, and so many things that I need to do in my work. You've written about how you grew up in a comically cliched version of a Greenwich Village family in a squat, unremarkable, red-brick, pre-war apartment building. And you lived on the corner of a then-seedy two-block lane called Downing Street. How is it comically cliched? <laughs> you know, Woody Allen made hay with the comical Ben Sean posters and the knee-jerk politics. But growing up in the village, it was a much more, um, much more of a community. It was much more middle class. Um, it had a, still a large Italian population, mostly working class. It, it felt like a welcoming place to people who wanted to feel that they were a little bit out of the mainstream. And I think back then, we're talking now about the 60s and 70s, there was there was a much more creative strain to that notion of contrarism. Now it's been so consumed and so it's, it's so quickly uh, converted into something on TikTok or Instagram that it's hard to even recognize as something out of the mainstream. But I think then there was this sense of a, of a not closed community, but a somewhat cosseted community. I think that was a, a very nurturing environment to be in too. I mean, the village now, uh, my family still is down there, some of it. Um, but it's, you know, it's an incredibly wealthy neighborhood. And I think it doesn't feel welcoming in the same way. It's certainly not a place where a lot of young people uh, could come and start their careers and try to find each other um, in, in the arts. And, and that, that's what it still was when I, when I was growing up. Uh, it was also, you know, as I said, filthy. And a little dangerous, kind of seedy. It was, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I, I, you and I are nearly the same age, and uh, my dad and mom divorced when I was about eight or nine years old, and my dad moved to Manhattan, and so I spent quite a lot of time there in the early seventies, and that's really when I fell in love with Manhattan. I'm a native New Yorker. I've lived in Manhattan now since 1983, since the year I graduated college. So it's almost 40 years of never living anywhere else. And I look back on the time in, in the early 70s. Yes, it was dangerous. And the subways were full of graffiti and had those terrible metal clanky doors. But there was something incredibly welcoming about it. And mm. A very, very special time, especially as the LGBTQ community was was beginning to sort of rise up and and make a difference as well. Yeah, 100 percent. I mean, I think, um, you know, the problem is I think some younger people will say, oh, well, this is just nostalgia for an older generation. But I, I do think there were some fundamental differences. It's not that New York cannot repeat 
much of this, but you mentioned the LGBT community. So the village was not just a welcoming place, but because there was the decline of the waterfront on the west side, there were piers that were just vacant, uh, essentially abandoned buildings. And so there were places uh, where people could meet that became clubs and and became just gathering places. And there were sort of interstices of the city that, um, you know, that's an interesting dynamic, right? When the city actually is in supposed decline, it often becomes a place where it's possible for artists and other people to find space uh, yeah. and to do really interesting things. And that's why I think the 70s, you know, it had something to push against and it also had an economy to work with. So it was a very, it was a very creative moment. But nonetheless, there was really something still, I think, <clears throat> magnetic about the village. And a lot of that did have to do with the LGBT uh, community that was there uh, for a long time, but obviously became a much more prominent part of the identity of the village after Stonewall. You talked about your dad being an avid reader of the New York Times and was convinced that it was run by the CIA. He cut out articles. He underlined things. You said that this gave you a sense that writing was a kind of social and ethical undertaking, that it was about trying to speak to the ills of society, to stimulate a conversation around what is possible. Was this when you first took an interest in writing? I think it actually was before that. It's um, I didn't really imagine myself a writer until after college. But I did admire my family's belief that there was a responsibility to participate in a conversation about the world, a larger world and around issues of equity um, and race. And then the question was, how, how does one most usefully do that? And I think I came to understand that writing was a very powerful instrument. I did grow up reading the Times. So I would go, you know, that was my little errand. I would, I'd be sent out by my parents to get the New York Times from the local store, you know, run by this very grumpy Italian woman on Bleecker Street. And, and I would bring home the paper. And so I read the paper and it be also became kind of enamored of the critics at the paper. In those days, the arts and leisure section of the New York Times would have sort of columns by these, these figures. And because I was a pianist, I would follow the musical coverage. I also would read the other things um, because my mother was an artist and I was interested in art. And I was very interested in this woman, Ada Louise Huxtable, uh, who was such an extraordinary and important, wonderful person and character and writer. So, so somewhere in there was gestating um, this idea of a public uh, role for writing but I became more interested in academics for a little while and uh, thought that maybe that was where I belonged. And it didn't take me that long, but I, I eventually found my way back to the idea that the CIA-run New York Times was probably my best <laughs> bet. Uh, if only. <laughs> uh, you attended Yale University for your undergraduate education and studied history. What did you think you wanted to do professionally at that point? Did you want to do something academically with history? So I went because I was a pianist, as I said, and I went to Yale because it had a great music school. And I also wanted a more a broader education. And I gravitated to history really because I thought, OK, listen, if I'm going to be interested in how the world works, I better know what happened. 
Um, <laughs> right. And that helps. Um, yes. Yeah, it does. And I really had this incredibly bizarre pedestrian idea that I should sort of start at the beginning. The beginning for me at that point was still a very Western focused idea, Greece and Rome, uh, and then making my way uh, progressively forward. But it was it was a very important grounding. I felt that if you had some basic understanding of history, that you could then understand things that grew out of that history, uh, not just cultural things, but but social economic forces, um, many other things that scientific progress and so forth. So it was really just like me doing training 101 for adulthood. You graduated from Yale and said you fell into a job as an editor at ID Magazine. And I wasn't sure if that was ID, the international ID Magazine or the domestic ID Magazine. It was the domestic ID Magazine. So the one that was owned by F&W that also owned Print Magazine. Yeah. Yeah, I'm the the editorial director of Print, so I just found that to be so interesting. (laughs) Yeah, it was at that time, um, you know, it was such an interesting publication. It was a trade publication, yes. um, really focused on on design, industrial designers, graphic designers, and so forth. And, you know, I just completely lucked into that job. I was by chance. It, it changed my whole life. And uh, it taught me how to edit and write. I did my first writing for it. I had to commission things. I had to lay out pages. It was so... It was a very intense um, and uh, remarkable opportunity, but it also sort of threw me into a field, which I think I I just uh, felt a kinship with from the beginning. It's like the first week I was sent out to go to the opening of some store in New York. I don't remember why. And I had a, a press package. It was a glossy folder with some sheets in it and photographs of this store and by the designers. It's something that, of course, as a journalist, you'll get a thousand of those things um, in a week. But at that time, it was all new to us. Like, wow, this is really so slick and cool. And I've been (laughs) invited to this place. And it was new and gleaming. And there was an architect there. There was something about it that made me feel I was in the world. Yes. I remember those early feelings. And there was also something about ID at that point. It was still very much a kind of, you know, old school, but high modernist publication. There was a graphic designer for it named David Sterling, I remember, who yes, founded yeah. something called Devil Space. Very creative. Um, you know, it it was a grounding for me as well and a particular idea about the role of design. I, I'm so glad, I'll say, that I didn't go, didn't luck into a job purely about architecture because there was something about being on the sort of industrial design side of things that was much more sort of in the world and practical and not downtrodden, but a little less fancy <laughs> and therefore willing to have conversations around very practical issues of about the role of design. And I think that also embedded in my head too. Uh, design wasn't just about, you know, things that Corb passed on to Norman Foster. It was also about uh, the way people sit, the you know, the Museum of Modern Arts design objects for five dollars or less, a corkscrew, uh, you know, this kind of stuff, and how modernism had an ambition to shape the world, to reshape society. Absolutely, and in many ways, I think the time that that you were there. Now that I know that that was you there, as <laughs> opposed to the international ID, um, and then what Chi Perlman was trying to do yeah. after. 
it was really the heyday of the magazine. Yeah. How long did you work there? Oh, it was just about a year. I Because then I went back to graduate school. Right. But I continued to do a little writing. And, um, and I also started to do freelance work outside that, too. After ID Magazine, you went back to school. You went to Harvard University for your master's degree and studied art history. Though I read that you didn't do it because you were deeply devoted to art history. What motivated you to choose that specific topic? First of all, I had done a, a, a fair amount of art history. I'd studied in Italy for a summer, and I was doing art history at Yale, too. And I grew up with some interest in, in art history. But it, it was also at a time when there were interesting people uh, doing art history, including Tim Clark at Harvard and Oleg Grabar, uh, who was the great Islamicist. And so um, I was attracted to the idea of doing art history, not because I wanted to become a gallerist or work at a museum, but because I thought it was a vehicle to talk about the world at large. But I did, while I was there, sort of keep my foot in the door journalistically. Okay. So I wrote, um, in fact, I started, I wrote my first articles for the New York Times. Right. But I was frustrated because I didn't really, I realized that I didn't really want to go into academics and out of, again, pretty much out of the blue, I mean, actually entirely out of the blue, I was approached by the Atlanta Journal-Constitution about being their music critic because I had been doing music, classical music reviews for the Boston Globe. Now, I actually had another thing going on, which was that I, I signed a book contract with Random House, which I still haven't done and hope still to do, on prodigies. Really? Yeah. So I thought when the Atlantic gig came up, I could, having never worked as a daily critic, I didn't know what it entailed, I could work on my Prodigies book and do some music criticism in Atlanta and take a leave from Harvard. So that was in 1984, I think. And that's when I left Harvard without ever quite quitting. I may even now technically still be... <laughs> Matriculated. Matriculated <laughs> at Harvard. And so I went to Atlanta thinking, okay, I'll work on this book. Um, and then I discovered what it was like to work as a daily critic. And I was doing music at that time. I lasted in Atlanta a few months and they were ready to run me out of town. I was I was a little critical of the orchestra in ways that I, I think the orchestra leaders did not appreciate. Um, <laughs> and uh, I got a call from the Philadelphia Inquirer. Um, which I guess had seen my work. And so I ended up in the Inquirer, which was a, a spectacularly fortunate place to land. It was at that time the most exciting and and uh, dynamic newspaper in, in America. Um, and they were incredibly generous and kind to me. Uh, uh, if I sound like I'm always saying I was lucky and and everyone was wonderful, I, I, I mean it. Uh, I, I do feel very fortunate um, you do say it a lot, although I do feel, and, and this is sort of a whole separate conversation, that the notion of luck is really about timing and opportunity and hard work. But but in any case. And to some extent, of course, trying to seize on the opportunities you do have. Um, the Inquirer was a, a place where I had uh, the opportunity to really try to stretch out as a journalist and and was given, you know, really good guidance by editors. And I was there not very long either. Uh, when I a couple a couple of years, I moved to the New York Times in I think 87. 
Yeah, your first article came out on April 29th, 1987, and it was a review of an all-finished concert where you started the article in this way, and I love this lead. Time has generally been a good editor. In this age of historical re-examination, the process of unearthing lost works by long-gone composers has become a flourishing business. Private archives, neglected library shelves, and an attic or two have yielded to inquiring musicologists a good number of finds that have then found their way into the concert stage and, in many cases, onto recordings. Do you still agree with that sentence? Time has generally been a good editor? Oh, God, yes, of course. Uh, And a cruel one, too, sometimes. Uh, But yes, (laughs) absolutely. Um, You actually started at the Times as a music critic, working alongside people like John Russell. And I understand that when he learned that you'd been trained as an art historian, he asked you if you would also be interested in writing about art. You've said that he must have been desperate to invite you to do that. (laughs) Well, I think... I (laughs) I can't imagine John Russell being desperate about anything, but (laughs) why would you think that? He was the coolest customer. So I should also say John became the godfather to my older child, and I I loved John and his wife, Rosamond, and I miss them both um, very much. He was a remarkable figure um, who uh, emerged in post-war London and uh, had had an incredible career during the Second World War, uh, working with Ian Fleming and naval intelligence for Churchill, and then after the war, wrote about theater and music and uh, became the art critic of the Sunday Times uh, and wrote many, many books. Uh, so he was a more than a role model. He was a kind of uh, mythic figure to me. Um, but he therefore also was appreciative of people who were, I think, able to write about and were interested in uh, different kinds of things. I, I suppose if I said I was desperate, it was also because I, I really had not done any kind of journalistic art writing at that point. And this was the deepest end of the deepest pool. And I was hesitant, too, um, not not just because I didn't want to make a complete idiot of myself in public, um, but also I just wasn't, because it's a very odd thing. I'd been a musician, so I had a totally natural understanding of what music critics did. But because I'd gone into art history, my relationship to um, art writing was really rather academic, and I kind of thought, Art criticism, I, what is that? It just seems somehow like tawdry. I don't, I don't know. I just didn't quite get it. Um, but it's an he interesting was, word for it. <laughs> but he was, uh, he was in his way very lovely and persuasive and said, why don't I try doing something? And so I did. As they say, the rest was, was history. <laughs> art writing, immediately, I, I don't remember exactly, but I think the first show I wrote about was at Pace Gallery, and it was about Rothko and Miro or something. So here were these two large figures. There was a lot to talk about. I just felt that the canvas was, was bigger, and the language was richer. Well, even just the conceptual nature of both artists makes it sort of as much art-based as idea-based, I yes, think. Yes, that's right. So, I mean, I, I just found it much more um, natural, to be honest with you. And I quit my music gig and 
<laughs> and moved over to the arts base. Once you took that job, though, I read that you felt like you were conducting your education as an art critic in a very public and conspicuous way and have said you spent your first few years on the job just trying not to make a complete idiot of yourself <laughs> in public. Yeah, well, <laughs> Your sure. words, not mine. <laughs> yeah, no, that's, I, I think that's exactly right. I, I will say there, you know, there are two ways one can um, can do that kind of a job in that kind of a position, and and one is to try to sort of make your mark uh, by actually saying extremely bold things and sort of being, uh, you know, very decisive and uh, <clears throat> staking out a territory. I would say that when I became the architecture critic, I was in much better position to do something like that than when I became the art critic. When I succeeded John, which was rather quickly after this, because, you know, I was very young and I, I was, there was a lot to learn. But I also felt that the art world was a rather Mandarin place. It, it, it's a bubble. It's a community. And uh, and there's an inside and an outside to it. Mm-hmm, very um, much. And so, you know, I felt like an outsider, which was an odd thing for the now new chief art critic of the New York Times to be. But it was a useful thing in some ways. Um, it gave me a certain kind of distance from this. Um, but it also meant that I felt like I could put my foot wrong very easily, uh, as one does in a place where you really feel a little foreign. What do you view as the role of the critic now? Oh, geez. Um, <laughs> Big fat question there for you. <laughs> Just snuck that one in. <laughs> yeah. Look, I think it depends on so many things, right? Which critic, what field, uh, for what publication. It's a very, I don't want to just fall back on on some general template. Um, but I do think that there is this a conversation around these fields in which critics operate that the critic is responsible for stimulating. I, I think the thumbs up, thumbs down aspect the sort of police, you know, traffic cop on the corner handing out tickets and or the teacher giving, you know, gold stars and stuff like this. That actually does have some function in consumer specific fields. So, you know, I think for restaurants and food, for instance, uh, you do want to know whether the restaurant is worth it. You want to know that probably with movies and TV, there's there's a lot more service journalism now focused on that, you know, which series on Netflix or Apple Plus should I watch? And because I'm going to devote so much time. And I think there is a responsibility critic has to telling you whether it's worth your time. And I certainly think in my field, in architecture, it's a completely different role. And it's why I think I feel most comfortable doing this. You know, in the art field, it's not about a consumer really, because very few people are in the market. It, your, your writing does play a role, I think an increasingly minor one in the operations of the market. But there is this sense that you are adding an opinion, and the opinion is based on sort of, I think, the strength of your voice. And that's interesting, but it's also a very weak foundation Mm-hmm. Um, and therefore you yourself, it, there's a lot of, it's not ad hominem exactly, but there's a lot of ambiguity about the value of remarks and comments and opinions in this world. That That's not, as I say, a bad thing, but in, for instance, what I write about now, first of all, there are a lot of facts. <laughs> 
So a, a building, let's say, costs a certain amount. Let's say it's a, a, a housing project. It, it has certain kinds of units in it. It may involve a certain level of affordability. It exists on a certain block in a certain place, which has a certain effect on the other buildings in that neighborhood. There, there are a lot of ways in which you're dealing with not just a vastly more complex set of issues, but you're also operating with some very tangible and specific problems. So it's not only about whether you think a building looks good or not, but about those other issues. Um, you know, what, 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 are the, what are the stakes? That's sort of what you're trying to wrestle with here around, I think, the built world. Um, what kind of world are we building? Um, so to me, that, that requires a different kind of repertorial responsibility and skill. I guess you would say that, I would have to say that the arc of my writing as a critic has continually broadened, and that's what's kept me doing it, my ability to do it in a, an expanding and different way over time. You you mentioned, you brought this up very briefly before, you said one of the reasons you returned to playing the piano and to performing was because you thought that if you were going to write as a critic, it was very it was going to be very useful to put yourself in a situation where you are also the subject to other people's judgments. And especially if you're wielding a giant stick like you are by the virtue of the publication you're writing for, you've stated it's useful to remember what it's like to make yourself vulnerable by putting your heart and soul on the line. Has that softened your writing as a critic, or has it given you more courage because you've also put yourself out there? You know, I don't, I don't know whether the people from the Atlanta Symphony were right that I was an obnoxious northerner coming down there as a kid to tell them off about their orchestra, by the way, which had amazing players in it. So I don't know if it's softened exactly. I'd like to think anyway that my writing is sharpened because I feel much more naturally and deeply the issues that I'm writing about because they have come back full circle to that world I described in the beginning of, you know, how people live and how we treat each other and and what, you know, what we are building um, or not building for each other. So I think the stakes are very high. But yes, I do think that, you know, as you get older too, uh, it's not just about putting myself out there. I think you have an appreciation for how difficult things are to get really meaningful things done, to, to do meaningful work. And, and so I'd, I'd like to think that my writing is more measured. It's very easy, you know, to score points and, and get a reputation as somebody who's a uh, you know, a flashy writer or somebody who's who's fun to read, if by just saying nasty things. <laughs> oh yeah, I mean those are those are it's like candy for people. Yeah. You know those yeah. those are the reviews that go viral about yeah. how you come out of a restaurant hungry or. Yeah. Uh, oh my God, that that Eleven Madison review when they went vegetarian. Those things just break my heart because of how much somebody works to make something. Right. Michael, your latest book is titled Intimate City, Walking New York, which began with an email you sent at 1.32 p.m. on March 13, 2020. 
an infamous day in our history. New York had confirmed its first cases of what would be the worst public health crisis in a century. You wrote to a group of architects, historians, writers, and friends, inviting them to take a walk with you. And you suggested walking through a place that was meaningful to them, illuminated the city and what they loved about it. Initially, your goal was distraction from a scary and and sort of frightening time when everything seemed uncertain. Aside from a book, what did the walks evolve into? For me, what evolved was an opportunity um, to remind people that the city was a rock and an inspiration. It was something people could see out their windows. In the beginning, it was something we could walk around when nothing else seemed safe. And then it also became something that I think united us. Um, It was a way of talking about how we share this thing with this responsibility, but also this, uh, this enterprise, which represents a kind of a notion of society, togetherness, um, and progress. Um, So I wanted to turn the book into something that was a celebration of the complexity and diversity um, of the city and the the people who made it um, and make it every day. That was the joy of it. I also think it was just, frankly, um, distracting. Distracting for me, distracting for the people who went on the walks with me, but also for readers, you know, at a time when every story seemed terrifying. Yeah. There was something joyous and happy about some of these stories. Hi, I'm Debbie Millman. Canva is great for designing visual content for work, no matter what industry or department you work in. Now your next presentation with Canva Presentations. Start with a professionally designed template and use it as a springboard for your design. It's a serious time saver. Time to present but can't be there in person? Enter Canva Talking Presentations. Record yourself presenting and add your talking head to your slides so your audience can watch your perfected presentation anywhere, anytime. Start designing today at canva.com. Designed for work. The book covers four of the five boroughs and some 540 million years of history as you walk through LGBTQ Greenwich Village, Chinatown, Harlem, and more. And you take readers back to an age when Times Square was still a beaver pond and Yankee Stadium was a salt marsh. In the chapter about the East River, you state, odd though it may sound, New York's heart is its perimeter. And I'm wondering if you can elaborate a little bit on that. Uh, so I'm a native New Yorker, and um, I moved back from Berlin in, in uh, the, the end of 2011. And one of the big changes after being gone for a few years was to see how the waterfront had changed, how areas that had been still sort of, you know, warehouses and and um, this is the margins of the city had become uh, greened and opened up. And it was a reminder of the incredible role that the waterfront has played in the city. I thought people, you know, I grew up too. I In the village, I wasn't that far from the Hudson River, and I would sort of be there, but I didn't really have a relationship with it, you know, daily. Uh, but also, um, uh, Deborah Burke, who I was one of the people I wrote to in the beginning and said, uh, any place you want to talk about that's personal and meaningful to you, she lives on 
the Upper East Side, and she walks along the riverfront. Um, and that's it's her solace and joy uh, every day. She does that with her husband. Sometimes she'll take the ferry to her office. And so out of that grew this idea about, um, you know, I think each of these chapters is really intended uh, to say something larger about the city, um, not just to be personal to the person who's um, walking with, but to tell s- the readers about some larger thing about what created the city and what the meaning of the city is, how it operates. Um, you know, as a native New Yorker, I sometimes get really cocky about what I know about the city. Um, many, many, many years ago, I took uh, my then very little brother on one of those red bus tours because he was so excited about the bus, not so much about what he was going to learn, but being on this double-decker bus. And I ended up learning so much that I couldn't believe how arrogant I'd been (laughs) about what I thought I knew about the city and came to this book really excited about how much more I could learn, and it does not disappoint. Um, You walk through Brooklyn with Thomas J. Capanella, who teaches city planning and directs the Urban and Regional Studies Program at Cornell. And he's also the historian in residence for the New York City Department of Parks and Recreation. He's a fourth-generation Brooklynite and the author of Brooklyn, The Once and Future City. And I was born in Brooklyn, and I loved learning so much about the borough. One of my favorites is this. Brooklyn was officially incorporated in 1834 by the start of the Civil War. Not three decades later, Brooklyn had already become the third largest city in America. And Michael, I believe that it still is. Is that correct? I'm not sure the exact population of Brooklyn. It could be the um, the third largest now. It must be Chicago. And I'd have to look up the population. But I mean, one of the other interesting things about that, right, is that, you know, um, we take for granted New York has five boroughs. I mean, yeah. You know, this is New York City. That uh, that was a relatively new thing. You know, it happened at the turn of the last century that that all five boroughs came together. That's when we built that giant building next to the Brooklyn Bridge on the Manhattan side. And when we sort of declared ourselves this greater metropolis. But they were very... Um, independent places, these boroughs, with very different identities. And we also have to remember that, um, you know, the subways weren't always there. So getting from Brooklyn to Manhattan, it it was a trip. Brooklyn fed Manhattan with resources, but Manhattan was an island. It's easy to say, but once you start to unpack this history and understand how neighborhoods develop as a result and industries develop, it's, it's I find it infinitely fascinating, and it tells you so much about things that you, it's not just what you think you know, that you pass through unconsciously every day. Um, you know, why is the, why are the streets of Chinatown or the village shaped this way? What, what, you know, how did that happen? Well, all these kind of things, which as a New Yorker like you, I didn't necessarily think I knew, but I, I realized how little I knew. <laughs> Yeah, or you took for granted. I didn't know that Brooklyn Heights was America's first commuter suburb, but it makes perfect sense. Right, there you go. Exactly. I also learned that Anna East Nin named her home, which was also in the area of Brooklyn Heights, February House, because some of the occupants had February birthdays. It was home to, listen to this list, listeners, Carson McCullers, W.H. Auden, Kurt Weil, Gypsy Rose Lee, Lotta Lenya. 
Um, the building's gone now. It was demolished. <laughs> it just kills me. It was demolished to make way for the Brooklyn Queens Expressway. Do you know, by any chance, Michael, why it wasn't declared a landmark? You know, the Brooklyn Queens Expressway was also what gave us the Brooklyn Heights Promenade, which is, of course, the great movie shot of Manhattan from Brooklyn, is essentially the the roof of the Brooklyn Queens Expressway, which clings to the cliff of the Heights over what's now Brooklyn Bridge Park. So... Uh, yes, we did lose that building. In those days, there wasn't the same, there was, first of all, there weren't landmark laws and there wasn't the same attitude really towards preservation. But that's a really interesting example. Now you walk around Brooklyn Heights and you see the promenade and you think, oh, well, this is, it seems eternal. And and in fact, it's a, it's a very mixed bag creation, a kind of jury rigged attempt to drive highways through New York and not um, completely destroy all of Brooklyn Heights. So we get the promenade, we also get the highway, we lose some buildings. It's a complicated organic organism, (laughs) New York City, and I find that part of it also deeply interesting. You walk the East Village with the writer Lucy Sante, and you write this in the book. By the 1960s, what used to be called simply the northern quadrant of Manhattan's Lower East Side took on a bohemian title, the East Village. It became home to beats, hippies, and new wave bands, to Allen Ginsberg, W.H. Auden, Abby Hoffman, Fillmore East, The Poetry Project, and during more recent decades, to graffiti artists and gentrifying droves of New York University students. To repurpose a phrase by another former resident, William S. Burroughs, in the East Village, the layers of history wrap around each other like hibernating rattlesnakes. Michael, how do you feel about the massive gentrification of the East Village? You know, as somebody who in the early 80s, spent a lot of time in the East Village. It feels kind of heartbreaking. The first time I ever saw the gap there, I knew it was over. (laughs) Yeah, it's such a complex subject, gentrification, I think. Um, And I do obviously feel, as so many people do, that the way we live, the system we operate under, it's a very capitalistic system, of course, mm-hmm. uh, empowers real estate interests in New York City um, to uh, an often extremely unhealthy degree. And uh, we're beholden to real estate interests, for instance, to create affordable housing, which used to be a public responsibility. You know, a lot of gentrification, gentrification is not the word I really prefer. Okay. I, I, I think the word that's crucial is displacement. I think that that's really what people feel, and especially people in poor neighborhoods, people in vulnerable neighborhoods. They're, what they're concerned is not necessarily that there isn't an investment or improvements to the neighborhood, which is often what comes with, with money, um, but they don't want to lose their homes. They don't want to be able to no longer afford to shop and, and exist in a neighborhood. Um, and that's really about displacement. Gentrification, in some cases, can be a good thing. You know, I mean, I mentioned earlier about Greenwich Village, next door, the village where I lived. Um, you know, it was a dingy and shabby place in some ways, and we can romanticize that. But it's nicer that the streets are cleaner and some of the parks are better maintained. I think gentrification, though, is a term that we associate with the loss of 
something that we valued because it's meaningful in our lives. And then very often it does mean the dissolution of a neighborhood that that found a, a bond over the things that that the, over the physical fabric of that neighborhood, which has changed. So that might be a corner bodega. Mm-hmm. It it might be you know just the way the benches are arranged in the in the median in the middle of Broadway. The unconscious ways that the city evolves, um, that people adapt to, and then find a sense of home. I think these village. Um, the the reason I'm, there's a hesitation in my voice <laughs> is because I I don't want to constantly romanticize the city as it used to be, certainly as it was when I was a child. And I fear that the most destructive forces today actually include uh, NIMBYs who are against almost any kind of change um, that uh, threatens what they have, and a kind of um, a preservationist movement that presumes anyth- any, anything that's new has got to be worse. But the city is a constantly changing thing. It's like us. Um, it needs to evolve. That doesn't mean you give free reign to wealthy developers to build whatever they want. The city is a conversation. It's a place we share. But obstruction to all change is is also a very unhealthy thing. So I miss that East Village, but I also think out of it came things, other neighborhoods that grew as a result of people being pushed out of that neighborhood. For instance, Mothaven. There was an interesting community of people who started to do music and art in in Mothaven uh, and on the Lower East Side, really the Lower East Side. So we have to, I think, be Focused and alert on all changes, but also uh, open uh, and and sensitive to the idea that not everything that's going to happen is is going to be bad. No, I absolutely agree. I I still get very excited when I see new things being built. There's something really interesting about having lived in New York my whole life, seeing a building and knowing before it was that it was that, and before it was that it was that, and before it was that. It was that. So you have this wonderful history that you might not have ever been able to have had you not been a long-term resident of a place and and weren't pushed out. And I still do get a lot of excitement about the new things that are coming and things that I hear about and the way parks have been reorganized or the way streets have been closed down for people to sit and be able to enjoy what's around them without worrying about cars. Right. I think that's a, I think it's a very good ex- example, Debbie, because, you know, uh, we created these plazas out of these areas that had been traffic clogged, like Times Square, but also around Madison Square Park, and then all over the city in underserved neighborhoods. And those are, those are improvements. And I'm not saying that necessarily every change is good, but I'm definitely saying the resistance to all change. New Yorkers have, I think, developed a a fear um, and have become very good at slowing down and blocking things. And some things should be blocked, but not everything. Um, And we we have lost progress for sure. Um, And with threats like climate change Mm. um, and with growing inequities in which we really need more affordable housing, this is an issue of of fairness, uh, not just a question of historical preservation. 
Michael, I have one last question for you today. You've stated that the goal of the intimate city is attunement, and you write, it's Cicerones, my walking companions, are Benjamins and Baudelaire's Flaneurs, or Joyce's characters in Ulysses, offering up their own psychogeographies. Nabokov used to instruct his Cornell students to chart on a map the paths that Stephen Dedalus and Leopold Bloom followed through Dublin if they hoped to understand that novel. And you go on to state, to have walked a place is also, in some measure, to possess it. Do you feel now that you have done these walks and written this book that you possess New York City in a different way? Yes, absolutely. And I say that fully aware that anybody and everybody can do the same thing. Um, You know, you, you never really understand a place unless you walk it unless you're there. Why are we tourists? Why do we travel? There's something about that physical presence in a place, understanding its scale, breathing the air, just... And New York City, I think, the the beauty, the really kind of... the, The miracle of New York City is that it's always been a place where absolutely everybody can come and immediately call themselves a New Yorker, and that's just fine. You know, it it is both the American idea but there's something very cosmopolitan, truly cosmopolitan about New York. And that has to do with just coming here and feeling you are a part of it and it is a part of you. And I wanted that to come across in the book too. We each may have our own way of seeing the city and of experiencing it and using it. Um, but we have collectively, we collectively own this same thing. And therefore, we are collectively responsible for it as well. That's a very beautiful um, and I think high, the highest really condition of human society. Uh, So I I don't mean to be too highfalutin. I mean, mostly I hope that when people read the book, they just have a lot of fun. Um, There's a lot of funny stories. and Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, people can find out why Times Square is called Times Square, why (laughs) the city poisoned its own water supply. I mean, there's so many interesting stories and and things to experience and learn. Michael, thank you so much for making such a marvelous book that really matters. And thank you for joining me today on Design Matters. Debbie, thank you so much. Michael Kimmelman's latest book is titled The Intimate City, Walking New York. You can read 32 years of his columns and writing about art and architecture in the New York Times. This is the 18th year we've been podcasting Design Matters, and I'd like to thank you for listening. And remember, we can talk about making a difference, we can make a difference, or we can do both. I'm Debbie Millman, and I look forward to talking with you again soon. Design Matters is produced for the TED Audio Collective by Curtis Fox Productions. The interviews are usually recorded at the Masters in Branding program at the School of Visual Arts in New York City, the first and longest-running branding program in the world. The editor-in-chief of Design Matters Media is Emily Wyland.